The podcast that you're about to hear contains acts of sex and violence. The hosts do not claim to be experts on the subjects that they present. Listener discretion is advised. And welcome, boys and girls, to Brutal Nation. I'm your host, Scott Alexander. Ryan Crossman is all one, the only Sasquatchitolian herself, Tammy the Gur Underwood. Hi, Tab. <laughs> Hi, everybody. No, you know, one of these days I'm going to be like from Mars or no, I'm from Venus because I'm a woman, you know, as Keith so eloquently pointed out. There you go, man. That's a, that's your new love interest right there. You and O'Keefe. Dude, you know what? I, I was, who was I telling? I think I told my mom. I said, I have moved up in this world. <laughs> Jesus Christ. All right. Let's get right into this guy because we got some calls coming in. We, we do have some calls coming in. So this one is um, his name is Russell Obremsky, and he is it's a bizarre case to say the least. But I'm just going to kind of dive right in because it kind of explains itself as we go along. So on February 3rd, in your favorite year, the small southern... Yeah, 69, <laughs> dude. See, and I'm going to have to say this a lot because this happened right at the beginning of 1969, so... But there's something I noticed, and I'll point it out later, but um, the small southern Oregon town of Medford would be changed forever. It all began in the early afternoon when residents of the neighborhood where Clifford and Laverna May Lowe lived heard loud shouts coming from somewhere. When those shouts turned to screams, they still couldn't pinpoint where the commotion was coming from. And a couple of minutes after that, all the neighbors said they heard the unmistakable sound of gunshots, four of them to be exact. And then nobody knew, even then, nobody knew where the shots were coming from. It wasn't until a couple of hours later at approximately 3 p.m. when kids were returning home from school before people would find out the horror of what was only just beginning. Is it horror or horror? Horror. Oh, okay. You I, always ask I me like that. I like both. <laughs> I know you do. <laughs> Horrors are people, too. <laughs> so, <laughs> Becky Lowe, Laverna's eight-year-old daughter, walked through her front door after school to find her mother, who was eight months pregnant, laying on the sofa. She had on a bathrobe and a torn bra, and she was lying in a pool of blood after being shot in the head four times. Oh, so it was her blood. She wasn't, like, bathing in it going, I will no. be beautiful again. No. She wasn't, like, into the vampire culture at all. So, approximately 30 minutes later, at around 3.30 p.m., before anybody really knew what had happened to Laverna, tragedy struck again. Betty and Richie pulled up in pulled into the parking lot of a pharmacy with her two sons, 16-year-old William and 11-year-old Robert. She remained in a car while the boys went inside to get her prescription. They were in the store for more than 10 minutes. However, when they returned to the parking lot, their mother and the car were nowhere to be found. They did notice that a few parking spaces away from their mother's, where their mother had been parked, was a hay truck. The truck stood out because it was idling and appeared to be abandoned by the driver. Now, Betty Ann wasn't seen alive again. In fact, her naked body was discovered the following day, approximately 34 miles away on Carberry Creek Road, which is southwest of Medford. Um, Her cause of death was a single gunshot wound to the head with a 22 caliber gun. And police reports indicate her shooter held the the muzzle of the gun directly against her temple when they shot her. Little did people know, but 24-year-old Russell Bremsky had set out on a murderous spree that day, a spree that sent all of Oregon into a state of terror that would mystify the justice system for several decades. And I'll explain that. Um, Russell Lauren Obremsky was born in Fort Klamath, Oregon on January 7th, 1945. 
Now, tragedy struck early in his young life. When he was only 10 years old, his mother suddenly died. Right after her death, he was sent to live with his stepfather, but they didn't have a great relationship. According to Russell, the man was a raging alcoholic who abused him regularly. He did only live with the man for approximately one year before his grandparents in Klamath Falls, Oregon, adopted him and he moved in with them. Now, I would imagine dealing with the tragedy of losing his mother and having to live with an abusive alcoholic had a tremendous impact on his young Russell's psyche and emotional development. Now, reports indicated that when he was in his early teens, he began having minor run-ins with authority. As he progressed into adulthood, those difficulties increased in severity. Dr. Neil Black, his family doctor, later stated that after Russell's mother passed away, he wasn't able to adapt to living a life without her. He became a pathological liar and his grades took a nosedive. When he was in fifth grade, his grades were so poor, school administrators decided it was best to hold him back a year. And he would have been held back in seventh grade as well, but his advanced A's prevented them from following through. Now, besides poor academics and having to repeat grades, he also had great difficulty interacting with other children, not just his classmates, but the other children around his neighborhood. Whenever his grandparents were called in for a conference or counseling session, his grandmother always took the defensive. She made excuses for his behavior and placed the blame for his actions on everybody except him. Now, this continued well into high school and his disruptive behavior, disregard for authority and inexcusable absences became too much for school administrators at Henley High School to keep ignoring. They finally expelled him and he was told he would not be allowed to return. Now, Russell is also known for his unprovoked violent outbursts. He began having run-ins with the law when he was only 12 years old. At first, he only engaged in acts of vandalism and nuisance, such as lewd phone calls, gasoline theft, and destruction of school property. Wait a minute. Lewd phone calls? That's a crime? Yeah, kind of. Like, I make those all the time to, you know what, carry on. (laughs) I know, I've received them. (laughs) I'm not going to incriminate myself. Mm Mm-hmm. Anyways, I guess back then it was. For those charges, he was sentenced to serve time at McLaren School for Boys. Now, McLaren is a juvenile facility within the Oregon Youth Authority located in Woodburn, and it's actually still in operation today. Two short months after Russell was let out of McLaren, he got, into, he got high by huffing glue. One poor decision led to another when he was walking down the street and encountered a boy who was younger than him. Unprovoked, Russell assaulted the smaller child right there in the middle of the street. His grandma continued to enable him until he threatened her one day. Only then did she decide it was time to get him some professional help. She had him admitted to the state hospital for approximately one year. However, she still didn't think that his aggressive behavior was caused by anything psychological. She truly thought that they were brought on by an epileptic disorder of some sort. Right? Um, by a disease, actually. Huh? I think that it was brought on by uh, a disease. It's called assholeitis. Assholeitis. It's like you know, he sounds, Walmart sounds like child. Yeah, he sounds like a fucking white trash little you know piece of shit. Mm-hmm. Pretty much. Now, um, leading up to the rampage in Medford, Russell was charged with and served time for crimes he committed as an adult. Those offenses included charges related to vagrancy, which is homelessness, larceny, which is theft of personal property, and criminal escape from a correctional facility. 
However, Russell was also charged and convicted of carnal knowledge. That was what the law. What cons- the fuck I know. Is that? I, I had to look it up too, <laughs> because you and I both know what carnal knowledge is, right? Yeah, I and it's like, how can you get crime. convicted of that? Because I, we would all be in jail. I, I would. I, they'd be like, dude, you have a lot of carnal knowledge. You're doing like fucking five life sentences <laughs> say, because you, you're a freaking nature. You would be in jail for your thoughts alone. <laughs> or should you? Should you? Because car- carnal being of sexual or uh, yeah, well, sort of. Well, uh, yeah, of, but... of consumption, because mm-hmm. um, you know, kernel means flesh, um, and the knowledge thinking. I have a lot of knowledge of consuming flesh. Of, <laughs> no, of, of of vaginas and yeah, and and bodies. And, uh, <laughs> I like how you cleaned that up. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to. Um, but uh, yeah, I didn't think that like you know that would be like a, a crime. Like you're going to jail for yeah, this. But what no, back hell? in that time, it was actually what the law considered sexual intercourse with a minor. The judge sentenced him to serve 20 years in prison, but for some reason, he was released from the penitentiary after spending little over a year, 14 months, incarcerated. As it is, he was released five short months before he terrorized a small community. Now, technically, the events that led to Russell's killing spree on February 3rd began a couple of days before. On Saturday, February 4th, 1969, yes, <laughs> it was a re- relatively cold day compared to typical Oregon weather for that time of year, especially southern Oregon. So he had shrinkage? I have no he idea. Couldn't, he couldn't get it up? He was like, it's cold. Shrinkage. It's called shrinkage. I don't have any idea. Did he turn around too quick and get his dick stuck to the to a light bulb? Like a tongue? I hate you. <laughs> Now, Russell and his friend, 26-year-old Don Slaughter, yeah, imagine that name. Dude, that is an all, an awesome name. That is like a rock star name. It actually is. There, there's a, uh, a band called Slaughter from the 80s, mm-hmm. if you remember them, and the lead singer, his name was Mark Slaughter. Oh, I didn't know that. I just knew that they were a band. An amazing band. And, mm-hmm. and I just saw that, they, that they're touring again. I saw that, too. I mean, the bass player died um, some time ago. Oh, wow. But, uh, you know... You replace bandmates, but yeah, so they're going to be playing at Alien A, the casino up the road, and it's a free show. Oh, dang. I like Slaughter. I do too. But I like hair metal, so. Yeah, me too. Well, anybody in our generation loves hair metal. Well, most of us do. Like, seriously, everybody in our generation, then we'll get back on track. If you look at them and you go, hey, buddy, shot through the heart, I guarantee they're going to and you're, you're too blessed. Yes. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Or, um,. You're wanted. Yep. Dead, dead or alive. Or, alive. <laughs> or I've got big. Yeah, you can name a ton of songs. <laughs> oh, yeah. Now, now, they left Klamath Falls with a truckload of hay to be delivered to White City, Oregon. Now, according to reports, Don had planned for him and Russell to deliver the hay to White City, which is approximately 70 miles west of Klamath Falls. But right next door to Medford, by the way. Yes. I knew that. Oh, okay. But after dropping off the load, they were to continue on to Medford, which is nine additional miles south of their drop-off point. From there, they were to stay at the residence of Clifford Lowe before returning to Klamath Falls a couple nights later. Now, the vehicle Russell and Don were driving had a loaded twenty-two caliber handgun, which had been placed on a shelf on the driver's side. Now, their route took them down Dead Indian Road, and it was while they were on that stretch of, stretch of road that the loaded gun fell from the shelf, hit the seat, and discharged. Which tells me, hey, maybe the safety wasn't on. Yeah. 
you know, the bullet struck Don in his right leg. And when that happened, Russell drove his co-driver straight to Providence Hospital, where he was admitted and held for approximately four days. Now, since Don had made a commitment, he and Russell were on a deadline. Therefore, after taking Don to the hospital, Russell fulfilled their commitment and delivered the hay to White City without his co-driver. After making the delivery on time, Russell followed the prearranged route and headed to Menford and the home of Clifford Lowe. Apparently, Clifford and Russell were acquaintances from their younger years, but they wouldn't have considered themselves friends, especially since they had had brief contact over the years. Clifford held up his end of the bargain and allowed Russell to stay at the house. In fact, Clifford's pregnant wife and five young children welcomed him with open arms. Now, on February 2nd, Russell planned to use the hay truck to haul auto parts approximately 13 and a half miles away to be delivered in Ashland. Somehow, Clifford noticed the handgun that Russell had in the truck's cab. On the morning of February 3rd, the low children aged who ranged in age from 8 to 15, were getting ready. That's five freaking kids. That's insane. Don't you know how that shit happens? Yes, like, knock I do. Knock the fuck off with those many kids, man. <laughs> it's not 19 kids and counting, damn it. <laughs> God, I don't like children. I know. Okay, I, I can say I, I like some children. Like, I do. There's well, a, there's yeah. some kids that are pretty good, but most kids, Jesus Christ, I just want to club them. <laughs> you know, me too, <laughs> lately. I just want to help society. That's all. Yeah. I'm a people person. Now, the kids were getting ready for school, and Clifford was getting ready for work. However, prior to leaving, he hesitated. He had misgivings about leaving his, preg- his wife, who was eight months pregnant, with Russell, a mere acquaintance who stood approximately six foot one and weighed roughly 200 pounds. Not to mention the man owned a loaded weapon, had a loaded weapon in his possession. Clifford voiced his concerns to Laverna, but she reassured him that everything would be fine. Considering the events that transpired, I'm guessing that Clifford wished he would have paid attention to his gut that morning and not left for work. On February 3rd at approximately 3.30 p.m., Clifford returned home from work to find his house surrounded by the police, who told him that his wife was found dead on their couch. In a twist of fate, he and Laverna hadn't even been married for a full year yet. Whoa, 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 wait a minute. What? Back the fuck up. What? How the fuck do they have? They have five. It's like a Brady Bunch situation. Oh, okay. Yeah, they were pregnant with their one together. Gotcha. I'm yeah. sitting there going, wait a minute, because, you know, mar- uh, having kids out of wedlock was frowned on then, yeah. you know, and now you, you, you're you popping out a six freaking little crotch goblin. You know, I was just wondering how the hell that shit happened. This yeah. is a story no. about a murdered lady oh who came with way too many kids. They were they were his and hers. So around at around this shut up at around the same time that Clifford arrived home from work, Russell, who had been inhaling glue from model airplanes all day, abducted Betty Ritchie in an intoxicated cloud, carjacking her. Unfortunately, he was well familiar with the area, so he knew exactly which back roads to take in order to get out of town to the south. Now, now Carberry Creek Road is a rural backwood stretch in an extremely secluded area near the Oregon-California border. Traffic isn't very heavy along that isolated road. Similar to small town life, everybody who travels Carberry Creek Road on their commute knows everyone else who takes that route and the car they drive. An unknown vehicle with unknown occupants would stand out among the natives. Therefore, on February 3, 1969, when an unfamiliar 1967 red Chevy Impala drove down Carberry Creek Road, it stood out. The locals also noticed they didn't recognize who the driver or the passenger of the vehicle were. Those same locals thought this situation was even more peculiar when the car returned and the passenger was no longer in the vehicle. Um, when the media announced the authority, 
he's were looking for a vehicle matching the description of the Impala. Calls flooded the sheriff's office from residents along Carberry Creek Road. A short time later, law enforcement officials discovered Betty's body. After Russell's arrest, he was very forthcoming with the details of her murder, which I want you to take note here because something else will come up later. According to the reports, uh, Russell said when he carjacked Betty, he fully intended to drive her to a remote area and take off with her car. Once he drove her down Carberry Creek Road, where he planned on leaving her, he figured if he made her take off all her clothes, it would take her longer to notify the authorities that he had stolen her Impala. Yeah, kind of hard to call the cops with no cell phone in your buck-ass Well, in, in 1969, they didn't have cell phones. I know. Did slap it in the wind. Well, no woman is going to go running down the street naked either. So. Yeah, but I keep hoping. Two Asian girls <laughs> I know you keep, naked. You keep wishing. <laughs> oh, Mr. Letterson, we love you a long time. Yeah. Right, come on in. <laughs> That's fun. So after Russell stated... Russell stated after he ordered her to get undressed, she started crying hysterically. He was so high on paint fumes and glue, he quickly became impatient, raised the gun, and shot her in the face at point-blank range. When she was dead, he tossed her body over the side side of the snow-covered embankment. Then he threw her clothing down at her body, got in the car, and drove to a store to purchase some beer. You know. Yeah, like everybody does. That, 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 I that. I call that my Wednesday. Yeah. So when Russell was at the counter paying for a six-pack of beer at Copper Store, the clerk asked him if he had just just driven by a short time before with a woman sitting in the passenger seat. Russell became a little agitated with the cashier, but replied by saying he took his relative, Betty Rodriguez, home. According to him, she had been visiting other family members in Klamath and needed a ride back to her place. Here's the thing. The clerk knew he was lying. They knew all the residents living on Carberry Creek Road, and none of them were named Betty Rodriguez. That's the shitty thing about a small town. I know. Everybody knows everybody. Well, and the sad part is, is that's not the only story he told. So I'll get into that in a little bit. Now, the local sheriff's office received another valuable tip the next day. According to reports, two surfers in Santa Cruz, California were offered a ride by a man driving a red Impala. Before they got in the car, they noticed that there was a handgun laying on the front seat and they saw what appeared to be blood covering the back seat. Not wanting to take any chances, they declined the man's offer and went to the nearest phone and called the authorities. We already established that Russell wasn't the brightest crayon in the crayon box, so it wasn't hard for the authorities to find him. I would say he stuck out like a red thumb, but it was more like a red Impala. (laughs) (laughs) That's my joke for the day. Ba-dum-bum. Yeah. So law enforcement officials could, once they identified the vehicle, they made a routine traffic stop. Knowing they were dealing with an armed man, the officers approached him out with their firearms at the ready. When Russell saw they meant business, he quickly surrendered himself without incident. You know, despite Russell's apparent lack of common sense on some levels, he knew a thing or two about the legal system. For instance, he knew he was a well-known offender throughout Oregon's justice system. However, he also knew how to draw out the judicial process. Once he was in jail in California, he exercised his civil rights by refusing to waive extradition. Therefore, Santa Cruz County was forced to call together a grand jury to decide on the issue. Approximately 20 witnesses were called to testify, but in the end, then-governor... Yours and my favorite president, Ronald Reagan, signed the extradition paperwork and California authorities quickly transferred Russell to Jackson County Jail in Medford. He stood before Judge L.L. Sawyer on March 11, 1969 for his arraignment. Now, during the arraignment, Carl M. Brophy and Patrick Ford were appointed by the court to defend Russell. They entered a plea of not guilty on his behalf for the reason of insanity defense. Now, Judge Sawyer ordered him to be held pending with trial without bail. 
Russell later granted an interview with the news program 48 Hours and talked about that time. He said that all he remembered feeling was that he desperately wanted to die. According to his statement, the only punishment appropriate for his actions was the death penalty, and he fully deserved to receive the maximum consequences. Unfortunately, Oregon didn't have the death penalty at that time. Now, as far as murder trials are concerned, it didn't take... It didn't seem like the Jackson County District Attorney was going to have a difficult time proving Russell was guilty of killing Laverna Lowe and Betty Ritchie, beyond a reasonable doubt. The defense tried moving for a change of venue because of the vast amount of media publicity surrounding the case, but it was denied. Therefore, on September 9th, 1969, Russell officially went on trial. You notice how quickly he went on trial? Yeah, in a heartbeat. Yeah, because it's like back then, it didn't take five million years. Now, Don Slaughter was called to the stand to testify. He stated for the record that at approximately 1.30 p.m. on February 3rd, he called the Lowe residence and told Laverna that he did not want Russell driving the hay truck anymore. He said that within an hour of placing the call, he was looking out the window of his hospital room when he saw the truck drive past heading toward Betty's pharmacy. Don also positively identified the 22 caliber handgun as the same weapon that he had kept in the truck. In fact, it was the same weapon that caused the injury that landed him in the hospital, and that pistol had also been identified as a murder weapon. Now, one of the Lowe's neighbors took the stand to tell the court that not only had she heard the screams and gunshots on February 3rd, she had also witnessed a green-colored hay truck driving away from the Lowe residence shortly after the incident. Then the county coroner testified during the autopsies he collected sperm samples. He did not clarify whether those samples were found in or on Laverna, Betty, or both. However, he did say that he found no clear evidence that a sexual assault had taken place with either victim. Since that was a time before DNA evidence was valued in court proceedings, without evidence of a rape or sexual assault, no, without evidence of a rape, no sexual assault charges were ever filed against him. Now, Russell never took the stand in his own defense. However, he granted interviews after the fact. In those interviews, he stated he had virtually no recollection of the events that transpired on the day in question. According to his claims, he didn't remember murdering Laverna Melo, kidnapping or murdering Betty Ritchie, or sexually assaulting either woman. However, as you find out, for someone who doesn't remember committing the crimes, he sure knows a lot about them. Right? Because he told them how he shot Betty. Remember earlier? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, okay, but if you don't remember, how can you tell them how you did it? Whatever. So as a prosecution... I don't judge. I know, right? As the prosecution presented their case, perhaps their most valuable witness was a man who was on Carberry Creek Road repairing fences on the day of the murder. Now, this statement has got to be the most damning testimony ever. He stated that he clearly remembered seeing a red Chevy Impala drive down the road. A man was driving the vehicle with a woman in the passenger seat. That same witness was later at the copper store when Russell stopped to buy his beer. The man said that when he watched the defendant walk into the store alone, he noticed the woman was not in the vehicle. He asked where the woman had gone, and Russell said he had taken her home, and her house was about, quote, five miles up the road. Curious, the witness then asked who the woman was married to. At that, you know, because apparently it's only the men that mattered back then. Damn right, and it should be that way now. (laughs) As it should be. (laughs) We start giving you women rights to vote and all kinds of stuff, and y'all get lippy. (laughs) At that point, Russell became agitated. However, he responded by saying, John, you know, John. After that, Russell paid for a sit back, left the store, got back in the vehicle, and drove off. 
The witness found the whole encounter suspicious, so he called a local law enforcement officer, and the two of them went up Carberry Creek Road together, searching for snow, searching the snow for unusual tire tracks. It didn't take them long to find fresh marks along the side of the road. When they got out of the vehicle and looked over the side, they saw the naked body of Betty Ann Ritchie. It was located approximately 25 feet down the side of the embankment, and there was fresh clothing scattered around the area. Now, several police officers were also called to testify. A couple stated that when they pulled Russell over in California and searched the Impala, they found Betty Ritchie's stockings in the back seat. They were balled together with a substance later determined to be glue. They also found tubes of model airplane glue, a common inhalant, in the vehicle. Officers who searched the hay truck testified to finding more tubes of the airplane glue on the floor of that vehicle as well. A couple of Russell's settlements, otherwise known as, you know, jailhouse snitches, also took the stand. They told the jury that Russell told them he had hit Laverna Lowe and she didn't take kindly to his, he hit on Laverna Lowe and she didn't take kindly to his gesture. In response, she smacked him. And he told them he became angry and, quote, dragged her into the bedroom. See, that's what happens when you when you <laughs> let people get all lippy, man. She when started a woman think- gets lippy, she gets dragged by her hair. Damn right. Caveman style. Lippy. You're so dumb. According to their testimony, they asked Russell what happened once he had Laverne in the bedroom, and he responded by saying, what do you think I done? Bam, bam. I do it again. Now, if that's the case and he drug her to the bedroom, why was she found on the couch? Because she's lazy. She should have been up making some dinner. Vacuum in the <laughs> he floor. He drug her back to the front room. Damn right. Now, the prosecution rested after calling approximately 63 witnesses to the stand. When they were finished with their case, there was never a doubt that Russell Obremsky was guilty of committing two murders. However, he didn't just plead not guilty. His attorney stated he was innocent by reason of insanity. So the question remained, was he insane by the legal definition? Go. So while the prosecution was presenting their case, counsel for the defense was unusually quiet. In fact, they only raised an objection a few times. Mostly, they didn't even bother trying to cross-examine any of the witnesses who testified. Everyone realized most of their case was resting on the fact the jury would rule their client was insane. Now, perhaps Russell wanted the de- to deal the cards in his favor for that outcome. On the first day the defense would have presented their case, he arrived in court wearing waist shackles. According to reports, that morning, deputies at the jail heard an odd noise and went to investigate. It was a masturbating. No, but they did find a blade for a hacksaw hidden inside the mattress in his cell. Oh, well, damn. Go, boy. Yeah. Apparently, he had been using it to saw away at the cell bars to escape the facility. Apparently, he didn't talk to Carl Payne's room first, but whatever. Once Russell had been caught with the contraband, he flew into a fit of violent rage. He used his feet to destroy the latrine, ripped pipes from the wall, and tore the sink from the foundation. His actions sent water cascading down an electrical conduit into the wall, leading into the offices of the courthouse downstairs. Latrine is a bathroom, soldiers! Just in case you don't know that. <laughs> into the loo. <laughs> or loo. If you're, in, if you're in Great Britain, it's a loo. It's a loo. So however, or the head, the Navy calls it. Right. Or the water closet. <laughs> okay, we're done. <laughs> the outhouse. Okay, we're done. However, he didn't stop there. When his attorney stopped by the holding cell to talk to him before the court proceedings, he grabbed a pencil and threatened to poke it in the eye of one of his attorneys. Then he grabbed a chair and swung it at the other attorney. In response to his outburst, they actually requested the judge require chains be placed on their client during court. Should have Hannibal, Hannibal lectured him, man. Put him no on a shit. car, put a fucking thing over his mouth. <laughs> Hello, Clarice. On a hand cart. <laughs> I am here for my trial. 
Tell me, Judge Clarice, are the lambs still screaming? <laughs> With the little hockey mask over his face. Hell yeah. Fucking little psycho, man. I'm telling you. It was the responsibility of the defense to prove their client was insane. To do that, they had to call witnesses who would support their claim. The first to take the stand was Dr. Neil Black, Russell's family physician. He testified the defendant was, quote, a constitutional psychopath. He said a person with this type of personality acted on impulse. They never truly considered the consequences of their actions prior to engagement. In fact, they seldom, if ever, obey rules intended to govern society. However, Dr. Black fell short of saying Russell was oblivious about whether his actions were right or wrong, which that's what they need, right? Right. So next they called a psychiatrist from Portland, Dr. James G. Shanklin. What a name. <laughs> it sounds like something you get on your butthole. Oh, man, I got the Shanklins. <laughs> Shanklin? No, it sounds like a weapon they use in prison to kill somebody. Nah, not to me, I'm man. Shanklin him. It sounds like something you got to put a little bit of cream on. You got to sit on a donut. Thanks. Now my butt hurts. <laughs> <laughs> well, rough, rough date night yeah. on Sandy Boulevard. Okay. <laughs> oh, fuck you. <laughs> he had never interviewed Russell, but he had studied his file extensively. According to his testimony, the facts within Russell's file were consistent with it. What, what's that? That's a five minute. Oh, were consistent with an individual with mental illness. After reviewing Russell's history, it was his belief, I'm almost done, that the man suffered from paranoid schizophrenia. Dr. Shanklin said that a diagnosis of paranoid schizophrenia would greatly affect several aspects of Russell's psyche, including his intelligence level, his emotional responses, and the way he conducted social relationships. A paranoid schizophrenic would often withdraw from the surrounding reality. They, they experience a hypersensitivity to love and hate, which causes unusual reactions depending on if they feel attraction towards or rejection from someone. In fact, an individual suffering from this illness often lives in their own fantasy world. They aren't capable of effectively coping with emotional stress. Depending on the situation, they are either extremely withdrawn from others or they act out with high levels of aggression. Now, when Shanklin was asked whether Russell was aware of the consequences resulting from his actions, he said, his, quote, his tolerance to pressure would be low. There is nothing in his case history to suggest this man ever deliberated in his life. Mentally ill and intoxicated, he was incapable of deliberating, plotting, and carrying through with any organized scheme. I don't think he could distinguish between right and wrong. Now, keep in mind, he never spoke to Russell directly. He based his opinion solely on what he read in the file. In other words... This entire testimony was based on hypothetical theories and yeah, not bullshit. indisputable facts. Yeah, it's bullshit. Right. Now, Dr. Russell, I mean, Russell didn't take the stand, but another doctor, Richard Lottie, did. And he said their final witness was Richard Lottie, Dr. Richard Lottie. He told the jury it was his opinion that Russell's issues started during birth. His mother went through labor for approximately 56 hours, which is over two days, which restricted oxygen to Russell's brain, causing irreparable damage, which was compounded by his addiction to inhalants. Now, the jury was given their instruction, and they delivered over two days for well over nine hours before they unanimously decided Russell was guilty of first-degree murder on both counts. Now, as far as the jury's decision on the insanity plea, one jury talked about the issue later in an interview with the Eugene Register Guard. He said the insanity defense was the first thing they rejected once they entered chambers. In 1960s, when Russell was convicted of the crime, Oregon law stipulated that anyone guilty of first-degree murder be given a mandatory life sentence. However, similar to death penalty sentences, they would receive appeals automatically. 
when the district attorney for Jackson County was interviewed, he's later said this man should never be out of jail. Okay, now, I just this quick paragraph here. Normally, when someone is convicted of more than one murder and issued a prison sentence, the judge orders them to serve their sentence co- concurrently or consecutively. However, because of the way sentencing guidelines were read during that time, Judge Sawyer chose not to specify his sentencing either way. He stated, the question of whether the sentences be served consecutively or concurrently is moot. For this reason, the court will remain silent. But I feel sure that Mr. Obremsky will not be released to return to society and should not be released upon society. As it turns out, Judge Sawyer would regret his decision on this matter nearly 25 years later. Okay? That's the end of part one. Alright, that was part one. Remember, you can check us out on Medium, Crime Beat on Medium, or wherever you get your blogs. Check out the website at www.twistedbluellc.com You can send us an email at brutalnation at twistedbluellc.com um, yeah, We got a bunch of other stuff. Just check out the website. We got some cool shit. This show is copyrighted 2022 by Twisted Blue LLC. All rights are reserved, and we will see you guys later. Bye-bye. Bye, everybody.